the the poll book the poll book is completely off, completely off. Off that by thirty thousand. I'd say that poll book is off by over a hundred thousand. That how- poll book. Why don't you look at the registered voters on there? How many registered voters are on there? Did you do you even know the answer to that? So, no, I guess it's, I'm trying to get to the bottom zero. of this here. Zero. There's zero. So, my question then is if the guess how many? Wait, what about what about how what what about about the turnout rate? A hundred and twenty percent. Let's uh, let's let Representative Johnson ask his question. So, <laughs> so the poll book number. Okay, there, there's two things that could happen here. Either the poll book number, if ballots were counted multiple, multiple times, there, there's two options. Option number one is that the poll book numbers are not going to match. They the, don't. The actual. Not by thousands and thousands of votes. That's not what we see right now. You that, take a look again. One. Take a look again. Option number two is that they essentially were, were filling in names of people who didn't vote. That, Dead that, people, too? So is that, Let's I guess, let is that Representative Johnson ask his question, and then when I he's done. I thought that was his answer. Okay. Well, I guess that, that's uh, well, my, my question here is why we're not seeing the poll book off by 30,000 votes. That, that's not the what case. What did you guys do, take it and uh, do something crazy to it? I'm just saying the numbers are not off by 30,000 votes. So I know what I saw. That they're filling in? I know what minutes? I saw, and I signed something saying that if I'm wrong, I can go to prison. Okay. Did you? Okay, we're. I think I'm just trying I th- to ask you a, a me, legitimate uh, question here. Yeah, let's let Representative Johnson ask his question, and then don't interrupt him. And then, okay. and then, if you want to respond to it, that's fine. And, uh, did you have more, Representative? Yeah, I guess I just want to keep following back up with the poll book. So, are we saying that the poll book is either wildly off, or that they are that they are off. filling in names? It's wildly off, and dead people voted, and uh, illegals voted. Okay. so that's my uh, answer. I think Okay, um, it is Friday, December 4th, 2020. Uh, who you just heard was, uh, her name, what the hell is her name? Uh, Melissa Carone. Uh, she was a whistleblower. Supposedly the whistleblower uh, during um, testifying uh, before a committee who seemed to about a course uh, you know balloting with with the, with the Trump you know Giuliani was right next to her and she seemed to be drunk out of her goddamn mind. If not drunk, then on a lot of Ambien. So I believe this was. Uh, Michigan committee, just like you know, if, if, if it wasn't, please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, before people have already been saying that this was just like this is this is this all this has the making of a, of a great Saturday Night Live sketch. I, on the other hand, think this is sad as shit. Uh, just seeing uh, this this drunk ass woman. This inebriated woman under under the influence of something, just uh, acting like she's she's the drunk girl at a book club, like you know you know off you know off that prosecco too much, and uh, apparently just uh, making a goddamn fool of herself. 
talking. This this this, this is how it is now. Just like the the most uh, preposterous shit is considered news. This is where we are now in the world now. We're we're crazy shit. Like this happened. This just happened a couple of days ago, and apparently this is this is where we are. People acting like goddamn fools, and and getting captured on camera. And we got to talk about that for some reason. Oh, by the way, I'm back uh, after after a couple after a few months of me wondering. Like it was a combination of things, just like just like the uh, the pandemic and um, finding a place to record, and also do I feel like doing this shit or not? Just. But apparently a lot of y'all are actually listening, so I wouldn't say a lot of y'all, just like some people, some very some people have been uh, hitting me up saying, hey, we ain't going to do this shit again. So so here I am. So let's see if I can try to do this shit. I, I got my notes. I, I, I put a, dropped a bunch of notes in the uh, notes section of my iPhone. Let's see if we can do this. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. The United States reported a record uh, 2,800 deaths caused by COVID-19, the highest single-day death toll ever reported, according to data compiled by John Hopkins University. The U.S. previously reported just over 2,600 de- deaths on April 15th during the first phase of the COVID-19 surge of spring. Those were mo- cluttered mostly in the Northeast and other cities around the country. Uh, there's, you know, there's been a lot of talk of lockdowns. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom warned Thursday that uh, the state would impose a new shelter-at-home order if hospitals start running short of intensive care capacity, a dire possibility that could happen in some areas as soon as this week. However, uh, hundreds, of, hundreds of protesters gathered on Wednesday night outside a Staten Island bar that shut down after refusing to follow COVID-19 measures, authorities said. The large demonstration came a day after Max Public House, a bar in an area where the city prohibits indoor dining, was forced to close its doors after it violated multiple health and liquor laws, the New York City Sheriff's Office said. By the way, Staten Island's COVID-19 positive test rate is the city's highest with uh, 15% of the borough's hospital beds filled with coronavirus patients and fears of more cases for Governor Andrew Cuomo in, uh, to reopen an emergency field hospital for local leaders. The growing crisis underscored Staten Island's status as the only borough without a city-run public hospital and sparked renewed calls for more health care funding. So basically, um, as I said, I think I said this a long time ago. Just like as long as, as long as people in the U.S. keep fucking up, we're always going to have this coronavirus. We could we could just put on masks and just chill the fuck out, but we can't because we're, we're trying to tell you what people are trying to tell us what to do to. to to uh, bring this stuff down, and you know, hopefully we can we can all see the day we can all get a vaccine. 
and uh, just you know try to try to level all this shit out. But no, we gotta uh, clutter up outside a bar. And by by the way, whatever happened to this drinking at home? I'm a big fan of drinking at home with my goddamn self. I sure the bars are nice and everything, just like be around people, just get liquored up and everything. But at the same time, if you can't uh, go to the bars, just just get wasted at the house. Why the fuck y'all gotta make a big? I mean, bars. I hate I hate to the and 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 as a as a practicing alcoholic, I can tell you this: uh, bars are not essential places. People complain about, oh, oh, the WalMarts are open and the Home Goods are open or whatever. Those are essential places. You know, you bars are are not essential places. And and even though as much as you know, people should um, keep up with business, small businesses like bars and clubs and whatnot. I think you know, like it would be nice if. You know, some pe- you know people can call upon uh, making sure people who work at bars and clubs are properly uh, compensated during these times. But unfortunately, that sadly is not the case. But um, so yeah, as as much as I would like to see uh, local watering holes, many some of my favorite local watering holes. Uh, stay open and and stay up in terms of uh you know, you know being a business and everything. Just sadly, it's not that essential. Um, so it should not. Uh, people should not all crowd up on the street, giving each other goddamn coronavirus. In the process, the protest is. I don't know if you saw the videos of. Like all these uh, Staten Island people making a big deal, complaining about, you know, this is this is this 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 Gestapo or whatever the fuck. Jeez, just yeah. You know, as hard as it may be to admit you know, for people to to understand, you know, there are there are people out there that's trying uh, not to get people sick, so they can pass that shit on to their grandparents. And they end up dying because of it. Just, just, just like even though we we gotten you know who out of the the White House, there's still people still acting like goddamn idiots. I'll just end it like that. Just let me go. Just people, and this is just a continuing way of things. People acting like goddamn idiots. All right. Uh, former President Barack Obama is getting pushback from progressive leaders in the par- in the party after saying in an interview Wednesday that political candidates who use snappy slogans such as "defund the police" should could jeopardize their campaign goals on police reform and even lose support from their base. Uh, you lost a big audience the minute uh, you say it. Uh, this is this is my Barack Obama version. Uh, which makes it a lot less likely uh, that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. Obama told Peter Hamby, who hosts a Good Luck America a Snapchat political show. What the fuck? Uh, the key 
Uh, okay. The 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 key is deciding. Uh, do you want to uh, actually get something done, or do you want to uh, feel good among the people you already agree with? All right. Okay. Listen. Uh, listen. At this point, I actually believe that we'll never uh, defund the police because it's the police. We we just gotta crack down on them. Like whether you feel defund the police or reform the police, you know the the police should uh, be held accountable for their actions in terms of you know shooting niggas in the back six seven times. Why why you need it once again? Why you need to shoot nigga in the back six seven times? Why did this first time? Did, you don't think the first time might have nailed that that message or whatever? Yeah, stop, you know, just just stop killing niggas. That that's like that that should be one thing. Just just have people chanting, "Hey, stop killing niggas!" Just stop killing. Also, I don't know if I if I forget if I brought this up on uh, the the uh, the podcast in previous episodes, but you know, we we should uh, start. Uh, Making the police uh shoot niggas in the ass. Just shoot just start shooting people and sailors in the ass. Remember in training day when uh Denzel at the end of training day where uh Denzel Washington was about to pick up the gun and then Ethan Hawk shot Denzel in the ass and he was just like, Oh you motherfucker shot me in the ass, man. Just and he, and he didn't pick up the gun because he got shot in the ass. You ever think about just aiming for the ass? Don't have to go for any vital organs or nothing. Just try not trying to shoot them dead or anything. Just shoot them in the ass. Now, if you shot me in the ass, I would stop whatever the fuck I'm doing. Aim for the ass. God, you know, just 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 just, just try. It. Let's let's start chanting that in the streets. Aim for the ass. Nigga, Wesley Pipes do it. Why can't you? Aim for the ass. Just stop trying to kill black men and just and just wound them. You know how grateful a black person would be if you just shot him in the ass? Like, oh, thank, oh, thank God he shot me in the ass. I can, I can go get this bullet out, man. I'm still alive. I can... I can go on with my life. My family don't have to cry for me and shit like that. Just policemen just shot me in the ass. That'd be so nice. It's just there were just reports of policemen shooting uh, dudes in the ass. Just like there wouldn't be any more, you know, protests or whatever or not because cops just start, you know, if a, if a guy just runs and whatever. The cop just shot him in the ass, and that was the end of it. Dude's still alive, and then whatever, like, you just... Aim for the ass! Can't your policemen do that? Just aim for the ass! They're running! Just running, just take a gun, just just, just, just be, be like that, just have that American sniper just... Uh, this target sense or whatever. Just, just look at the, just look at the dude. This be first time. Policeman should just look at the dude's ass, and just the minute that dude runs, shoot him in the ass. Aim for 
your BS. Okay, let's move on. Um, what other stuff here? Oh, yeah, well, uh, Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton are volunteering to get their COVID-19 vaccines on camera to promote public confidence in the vaccine safety once the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized one. So, so, they're, so they're ready to, you know, they're really ready to get their vaccines. It's like, nigga, I want to be the first one up. So, so there's that. In nigga news, uh, during an appearance on T.I.'s Expeditiously podcast earlier this month, a young thug offered some unfavorable comments about Andre 3000 that came about when T.I. compared the two's eccentric fashion choices when asking Thug about his Jeffrey dress. Uh, I can't rap you two Andre 3000 songs. Doug said, I ain't never paid attention to him, never in my life. Uh, this this despite the fact that uh, 2016, uh, th- uh, Andre Three Stacks uh, shouted him out during a surprise appearance on a Kid Craddock morning show interview with L.A. Reid. A couple months later, he name-dropped Thug again at Fight Dog's funeral. So apparently, once again, is this a young uh, rapper? I, I, I watched the, the clip of him on, on T.I.'s podcast just basically uh, disrespecting the hell out of 3000 because uh, apparently 3000 has uh, an assistant that you got to go through that assistant, you know, apart from, I don't know, Elton John because he's young thug did something with Elton John. And, and they were like, hey, you know, 3000, hey, he's, he's, he's elusive. You can't blame dude for being elusive, just – but just uh, just another case of these young rappers being disrespectful as fuck because that's that's what happens. Just young rappers, you know, they you know, get out there, get get famous, and apparently all the other rappers before them ain't shit. So expect that from young. I don't know any young. Look, I you know it's funny because I think I listened to a young thug album, and I can't tell you anything. About that young thug album, apart from the fact that he's on the cover dressed like those damn assassins from Big Trouble in Little China, you know, that, that come from the sky and just whatever. Ah, ah whatever, man. What else? Here's other Nick news. Uh, Rihanna and ASAP Rocky are dating. Congratulations. Uh, oh, here. <laughs> yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, source is. Okay, a source exclusively tells E! News that NBA star Malik Beasley's wife, Montana Yeo, has filed for divorce less than a week after news broke that he was spotted hand-in-hand with Larsa Pippen. Um, Yeah, I found out earlier this week who the hell Larsa Pippen is. Apparently, uh, NBA Twitter uh, is not a big fan of Larsa Larsa Pippen. Uh, mostly because apparently she's in her late 40s. And this dude is in his 20s. And, you know, they all... I I did not know how savage NBA Twitter is. Apparently, NBA Twitter is not a big fan of old pussy, which is sad because there's there's some... There's some great, you know, middle-aged 
Wade is out there killing it and just so on. You know, yeah, yeah. Most of y'all already know how I feel about the situation. Just, but uh, just, just sad that. Look, this dude is creeping or whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't know the situation, but y'all shouldn't take it out on uh, on this lady because she, she happens to be older than him. And I'm just like, hey, you know, just you know, may, maybe he likes them a little bit more experienced. You know, just you know, just you know, just teach teach this young dog some new tricks or some some veteran tricks or whatever. Just. Yeah, y'all, y'all should really look at NBA Twitter. Those are some savage ass motherfuckers. They just, just calling her an old hoe, which is just like, God damn, just. <sighs> I think that's just, just Twitter in a nutshell. A bunch of bitter, savage motherfuckers just ready to talk shit. Spe- speaking of that, because uh, uh, Noah Cyrus recently got dragged. Uh, for posting a photo of Harry Styles on her IG story in a dress saying, and just write a caption saying that he wears the dress better than any of you nappy-ass hoes because apparently when some, when you know, people online see a white person using the term nappy and ho, nappy-ass hoes, they instantly say, oh, she's she's talking about black people, so... Because apparently, a lot of black people are nappy ass hoes all of a sudden. You think this this girl knows who nappy what nappy means? Or whatever. Because apparent yeah, cause apparently, nappy ass hoes is exclusive only to black people. Unfortunately, so when some white girl like Noah Cyrus, by the way, we need to talk about how she's she's a, she's a girl named Noah. Just did not know. Uh, girls could be named Noah, but uh, yeah. So, but when white girls like Noah says something like "nappy ass hoes," you know, we're we're automatically led to believe that she's talking about the sisters. Like it's just the Don Imus thing all over again, because just like Don Imus, of course, uh, made made just made the whole nappy headed hoes comment. So. And we we are automatically knew he was talking about black women or whatever. So of course, when she brings it up, she means black women. So I I don't know. Just yeah, just it's it, and I'm not trying to defend her or anything like that. But just like I'm not, you know. Then we ask, yeah, you just ask, are, are you referring <laughs> as as somebody asked her? Yeah, are you referring to black women or just women in general? And just. Somebody needs to ask her that, and somebody needs to clear that shit up immediately, so she she doesn't get the whole she she doesn't get canceled, and then immediately has to appear on Red Table Talk to explain herself. She should have had something like right after, just like I'm talking about all. She should post something immediately afterwards. I'm talking about all hating ass hoes. I am not talking about like, like white girls can be nappy. Yeah, and it is. There is truth to that. You know, white girls can be nappy, because especially those who are now uh, getting their hair all knotted up like black women. So officially, they're in the camp now. You know, let's. And somebody should bring that. Up. White women can be nappy too. 
It's a anybody who's seen Hillbilly Elegy knows that white women can be nappy too. Getting getting tired up here ranting. <laughs> I need some water. Uh, Whoa, well, wait a minute. Uh, Warner Brothers announced Thursday that all of its films scheduled to launch in 2021 will be released on HBO Max at the same time they are available in theaters. It's currently a one-year plan. Hey, you know, got to get rid of these movies somehow because like, nobody's going to theaters because nobody wants to get sick and die. So, hey. I'm, like, these, everybody's wondering. Everybody keeps talking about, like, the movies or, you know, death of movies and shit, like, and everything like that. I'm just... Hollywood's going to be eyed. You know, just... And I don't think any, like anybody in Hollywood is hemorrhaging money at the moment. So, so if they want to drop all these films on a you know on a pro, on a venue proper venue where people will see it and everything, just might as well be a HBO Max. I mean, they're 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 all still wondering when HBO Max is going to appear on all the goddamn uh, uh you know streaming devices. It's like, you know, Roku and Apple Music and whatever. So this would be, if they, you know, I mean, Wonder Woman, that Wonder Woman sequence is going to finally come out at the end of the month on HBO Max. So whatever. I mean, just at this point now, just, just, just drop them on a streaming service and call it a day. Just, uh, what else? Oh yeah, a, a tiger nearly tore off the arm, tore the arm off a volunteer during an incident at animal activist Carol Baskin's Big Cat Sanctuary in Florida, according to local emergency services. The incident happened at approximately 8 a.m. on Thursday morning at Tampa's Big Cat Rescue. Just, just. Stay the fuck away from this woman, okay? Stay the f if you know there's a, there's a big chance that if you're around this lady, you might die. So, so yeah, isn't Joe Exotic also trying to get a pardon before you know who gets out of office? Why the hell do I know about these goddamn people? Uh, the the shit you find out during the, the people you get acquainted with during a pandemic just these 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 opportunistic tiger loving motherfuckers Jesus Christ Gee, oh man I've been talking for damn near thirty minutes okay um the small axe movies. Whether it's movies or TV, you know, if you want to call them movies, you want to call them TV. Who the fuck cares at this point? We're watching shit on our phones and and and, and iPads anyway. Nobody got like a big ass home theater in their house unless you know just they finagle away get a big ass TV in the living room. Just gives a fuck. It's just. 
Um, this is, I don't even know what the hell this is anymore. This is the most, uh, ghetto blasting. Let's, let's go with that. Uh, podcast show on the interwebs. This is everything's canceled. Uh, let's do this shit. Hey, uh, what's up? Just calling to see if you're still up, but straight to voicemail. Uh, yeah, no biggie. Um, if you're up or whatever, just hit, just hit me up. Let's go. Let's go.
85 cruising, sunroof open, volume turned up to the max. Lionel Richie and the Commodore zoom over a few tracks. I just needed me time to relax. This feels like the perfect interruption. Always something, up to something, something, something. A little max, well, to get the day started. The best part of waking up is waking up, diving in the waters uncharted. My life's audit, feel like a sonnet to a nigga used to spit in 16s. I am legend, no vaccine by any means. Too much time staring at these screens. Where's the defense? The pretense I was carried. Made a little watch that sediment got buried. What a parry. Celebrate like a sweet 16. Next week, same time, different theme. I'm cruising. I'm cruising. One time. Yeah. Yeah. Four or five cruising. Exit via Sherman Way. Professor Jones took the formula the Sherman Way to transform the buddy buddy love, losing weight. But not pounds, slimming down, I'm shedding off the fakes. Earn my stripes, feeling great, like a box of frosted flakes. At times it often takes, removing caution tape to let the right ones cross the safe. And pretty soon I'll be in awesome shape. LJ with LB, got him listening now, got him whispering loud. I'ma still be social distancing crowds. Six feet, no admission allowed. Countdown to when my art is renowned. My creative spark, I got a Tupperware, but it's not leftovers. A new path defeating me first. I stepped over to the other side, penning nice words like Titanic, but I'm dodging icebergs. Yeah, I'm cruising. Let's go, let's go. No, 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 no. I'm cruising. Yeah, 95 crews and the loosen up. Don't wanna be a fool and rush to look cool for the movement, but man, gotta get the cash, gotta get the dough. Like I'm making moves, puff. Pay your dues and refuse to be that prisoner. Relegated to an answer and rap trivia. I'm a black wizard, a southern gentleman, well-read and highly cultured like Activia. Rapper poo to the low nigga, that cinema. 3D IMAX at minimum. Never saw it coming. Why so cynical? We used to endure, I'm so cynical Last OG reppin' 336 like Rick D's Shouts to the Blue House, Doug Selinski 16 bar flex is just the strip tease Take your hand off the neck, now let that bitch breathe How you rhyming about shit that you ain't even versed in? Popping pills and dreaming, niggas is Ellen bursting Stat-wise, your boy never backfired Catch the wave or get capsized, nigga I'm cruising. No, 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 no Whatever I do, I think about you. Kiss 
kisses and the way you hug me The look of passion in your eyes Every word you say Whenever I'm down You're making me smile, baby Ooh, girl, I love you so oh. Everything is canceled, a.k.a. the show y'all niggas wanted to hear again. Let's go with that. Um, I am Craig D. Lindsay, a.k.a. Uncle Krizzle, a.k.a. Black Larry David, a.k.a. we all do stupid shit. That's, that's where I am right now in life. Um, let's see. Uh, let's, well, if you want to reach me, want to contact me, you hit me up on the interwebs, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok. Don't do it really. I don't post TikToks, but I'm, I'm still out there. At Uncle Crizzle, U-N-C-L-E, 
C-R-I-Z-Z-L-E. If you want to drop me a line or something, um, go to unclecrizzle at gmail.com. If you want to donate to the podcast, because this is December, and you know how much niggas forget to pay people in December, uh, hit me up at uh, paypal.me slash unclecrizzle. Sure. I got a Venmo and a Cash App and all this other shit, but I, I'm, you know, I, I always love my PayPal. Just get shit through eBay, through PayPal. So PayPal. Dot me slash Uncle Crizzle. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe wherever the hell you listen to this, whether it is Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. Let people know this goddamn thing exists. Well, let me tell you about uh, the block of music I played, um, starting at the top with uh, Heim. Yes, that is a fact. The, 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 the sisters from Heim, uh, 3 a.m. from their Women in Music Part 3. Basically, I think they were going for uh, the, mo- uh, the best track Jane Child ever recorded. If you know who she is, then you know, you're just as old as I am. Uh, and after that, uh, cruising from Lyric Jones featuring Lil Brother from the uh, Closer Than They Appear album. Uh, she's, you know, Lyric Jones, uh, that album could think of, uh, produced by Fonte Coleman, old friend of mine and the show. And after that was, uh, closing out was Ooh Girl by Blackstreet from the Level 2 album. Uh, you know, I've been listening to the uh, Jack podcast, which which talks about the history of New Jack Swing and and Teddy Riley, and uh, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't exactly come out that motherfucker uh, uh, smelling rosy. Like between between that podcast and you know all the shit that happened uh, earlier this year with the verses and him and Babyface and how he you know just was doing too goddamn much hasn't necessarily been his year you know so but me still dropped some good stuff like that song so had to put that up there all right uh now it's time to talk to somebody i should tell you this is a uh this is a very uh old interview i did this in july and stuff back when i was still you know in, in the pro, you know, doing this podcast uh, frequently, but uh, it's still one of my favorite interviews because it, it was somebody I admired and respected. And uh, you know, he did something this year that I thought really, that I think really needs to be um, talked about more, which is uh, a re release uh, his late father's movie, uh, Kane River, uh, which uh, is all it's on, uh, you know, it's on. Currently, it can be on like Amazon Prime and uh, YouTube and 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 uh, you know the iTunes, you know, just just out there on the streaming platforms. So um, I wanted to talk to him. So um, so yeah, here is my uh, interview with uh, Sasha Jenkins. Let's do this. Uh, of course, you're Sasha Jenkins. You um, what where, where do you call yourself these days? Um, I guess these days I'm a filmmaker, documentary so filmmaker. Okay, because, uh, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you of course, really from Philadelphia. You live in New York. Uh, which part of New York? I live in Inwood, which is in Manhattan, Upper Manhattan. Okay, and Matt, uh, you are uh, uh, 49, I believe. Uh, 48. Going to be 49 in 48. August. 48. Yep. 49 in August. Okay. Eh, that's, that's, that's cool. I have a birthday coming up, but that's here or right there. Uh, it's funny because I got you on the phone. It's like you're talking about, you know, your filmmaker. But of course, I remember you from your days as a music journalist. I remember I used to. Uh, sub- I was one of the original subscribers. Yeah, well, I was. I don't know. If it was like a thing where people knew where I was at. But I, I subscribed to Vibe when it first, you know, got up and running. And wow. uh, yeah, just, yeah, the, the first. The first issue was literally the Rosie Perez one, so that's always near and dear to my heart. Just because, uh, uh, you know, just uh, yeah, it's funny because I was looking back on uh, the Google Books; they have Vibe, uh, you know, on on archive there, and it's just like going through the uh, like the Revolution section, and I just like, oh Jesus, all these writers like Greg Tate and Grail Marcus and. You know, Armin Wyatt, of course, you, and just like, and just all, it's almost like just what talk you just like how crazy that was back then. You know, yeah. Being part of that experience. Yeah, it feels like such a long time ago. I um, look back fondly on those days. I mean, I started publishing my own magazines, and I published a graffiti zine in my teens, and then I published a, co-published a hip-hop newspaper called Beatdown, and then... Simultaneously, while I was an editor at Vibe, I was publishing a magazine called Ego Trip. So um, that just feels like many lifetimes ago. Maybe it's because I'm about to be 49. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny because, like, you know, I got more into Ego Trip kind of ironically after the magazine kind of folded. I mean, because, like, you, you, they were doing all those other things, like uh, you know, my, my favorite uh, public uh piece of uh literature uh which is Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism which helped me out a lot in right. several areas. And then you yeah, also was... started doing stuff on V H one and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean look, you're an OG clearly. No one no one even knows anything about that stuff or remembers it. So it's almost like you know, you ask me, you know, how do I what do I call myself these days? And I think I'm probably more so known as a documentary filmmaker most people don't even aren't familiar with my background as a music journalist so again it yeah. feels like a long time ago magazines are just like eight track cassettes at this point and uh oh, yeah. you know people are used to uh getting their information off of the internet they're not really um looking to a particular reviewer whose taste that they feel might be akin to their own to sort of make music choices now you can listen to an album online for nothing so it's a different different world when it comes to music journalism, at least from my perspective. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know it. Well, I mean, just we just get into just, of course, what you are doing now. Like you say you're a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, but uh, mostly, I guess, we're here to talk about, uh, you know, well, here to talk about um, uh, Kane River, which is uh, this film that has uh, been, um, if, if you want to call it, unearthed. And given uh, this new life these days, and you know, and, you know, 
I was, you know, watching recently, I was just like trying to, you know, in, in, in preparation to talk to you, I mostly wanted to get your experiences on it. Well, I mean, what, what do you remember the most about it? It almost makes me want to ask, I forget the name of the little boy, but that, that, that wasn't you, was it? No, I wasn't in the film, but, um, oh. I was of it, you know, that was probably that age when, when the film was made. I could have been that kid, but, uh, you know, film was shot in New Orleans and I was living in Queens, but I, I did come down one, the, the summer, I believe they were shooting. They were probably well into production at that point, or maybe they had wrapped. But, um, you know, the film wrapped and then it was edited and then my father died and then it just was never distributed. And, you know, I grew up, he grew up in Queens with a single mom from Haiti, uh, in the hood, telling people that my father was a filmmaker and no one really believed me. Um, and, you know, he was, you know, somewhat well known as a documentary filmmaker, but a lot of people didn't know that he had completed this independent, you know, narrative feature. And it just, you know, people die, people move on, you know, I kept doing my thing and then a couple of years ago I just you know maybe five years ago I just decided to google my dad and I found an article in the times that was about two years old that talked about this organization called Indie Collect who were sort of going through do arts you know sort of archive of you know unclaimed films that they wanted to get rid of or were figuring out what to do with all of that inventory and you know, literally, I'd been to that space, and the fact that they found Cane River is, like, literally, like, finding a needle in a haystack. It's unbelievable that out of all the films that were found, the Cane River was one of them. And so the article in the Times mentioned, you know, made by this filmmaker, Horace Jenkins, who died tragically, and it never saw a proper release. So I reached out to Indy Collect and said, hey, you know, that's my dad. I'm, I'm actually a filmmaker myself. Um, so that led to, you know, more conversations and a bit more press and a bit more awareness. And then eventually we went with Oscilloscope uh, Laboratories uh, for distribution. Ironically, that company was started by my late friend Adam Yakov, the Beastie Boys. And there were a few other um, distributors that were interesting or that were also interested in the film. But I said, you know what, a voice is telling me that Adam's company would be a beautiful place to sort of get my dad's, you know, dream of having his film officially released in theaters, you know, be amazing to work with Adam's company. And, uh, you know, it, I think it worked out pretty good. Unfortunately, COVID hit, it was released in some theaters. Uh, we had a great premiere mm -hmm. at BAM in New York city and it hit some other cities, but then COVID hit. So, it's bittersweet in some regards, but, you know, it's on Criterion, it's on Canopy. Um, I believe it's going to be on Turner Classic Movies soon. And so many people have watched it and loved it and, and have uh, have connected with it, and, you know, almost 40 years later. So for me, it's just an amazing feeling to finally have my dad's film and his vision out there. You know, so many people... I don't know if they didn't believe me or didn't understand that what I was telling them about my father. And now it's almost like somehow I'm in the same business and it wasn't because of whatever social capital or connections he had. You know, I wound up 
you know, getting to where I am through journalism. And, and um, but obviously I had my father as a North Star, so to speak, and always, you know, wanted to follow in his footsteps. And, you know, here I am in 2020 doing some of what yeah. he did. Uh, if you mind, uh, could I ask, like, how old was he? How old were you when he passed away? I was 10, 10 or 11, and he was, uh, like, 41, uh, yeah. 42, something like that. So he was uh, – I'm older than he was. Um, and, yeah. you know, when I was a kid, I used to think that 41 was old. But, man, you don't know shit at 41. You know, you're still figuring it out. So oh, yeah. being able to um, – get to where I am and I'm still trying to figure out, figure it out. You know, now I have a better understanding of who he was and where he might've been. I mean, my parents were, had split up and then the divorce papers came through a week before he died. So, you know, I wasn't living with my father since the age of six or seven. And we lived in Maryland, you know, he taught at Howard and when my parents split, he moved to New York and eventually we moved to New York. So, I'd see him on weekends or when he was in town, but um, I never had the full, you know, both parents full-on dad experience um, because he died. I mean, my parents put up and he was super young when he died. Yeah. Do you feel the movie, you know, just making and then and editing and getting the movie together that might that may have taken a toll on him health-wise? Yeah, I mean, you know, my mom, who is, you know, a typical Haitian mother, she's always like, I'm so worried about you. You do exactly what your father does. He's under so much stress. It's not good for your health. So certainly uh, the stress of being an independent black filmmaker and trying to get your film out there, I imagine, took its toll on its health. On his health. I mean, I'm sure he could have been taking better care of himself simultaneously. Um but he's a man of a different time. And, um, you know, he he had polio as a child. And mm-hmm. I suspect that that might have had a hand in affecting his health later on down the line. I mean, polio was no joke. And he, uh, he caught it at the tail end. I mean, they found it a cure soon after he had it. So um, who knows? But he, he died at 41 and, and you know, uh, the film was financed by a you know wonderful family in New Orleans, the Rhodes family, who you know have been in the you know funeral mortuary business since slavery, and they have given black people dignified burials since after slavery. I, I'm I'm sorry, they they weren't soon after slavery. I believe they started their business, and they've been giving black people dignified burials ever since. And they had the foresight to. Uh, invest in this guy which was you know an important part of the, the important piece of the puzzle you know that that uh all black cast mainly all black with a black director and black team behind the lens was you know financed by black financiers i mean that in itself is revolutionary um, the unfortunate yeah. side of it is you know they were in the funeral business, not in the movie business, so it's not a surprise or it's not shocking that the film would be buried. And, um, you know, that just wasn't their line of business. So, yeah. Here we are. I want 
And they, well, I just I just want to ask so much about Phil Mal, not like just just how much you know about because I know he had experience I believe public television, and I know if that was what uh, your father. I don't know that was that was his uh, direction in in making a movie, making it kind of like a, 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 a public TV film, or if he wanted to to see if he could uh, distribute it on a, on a theatrical level, and just and also just just see the story in itself, which is just almost like just the thing he wanted to talk about. Yeah, of course, uh, just you know, just slave related history and in. in, in yeah, especially among African Americans in uh, you know Louisiana, but do it in a kind of like this you know Romeo and Juliet West Side Story type of uh, uh, romance. So I just like I just try to see like you know if you could just like if you have any uh, intel about how he why why he wanted to go along with making this movie and just what was his uh, motive well, for, for doing it. Well, yeah, well, he was a documentary filmmaker, and he was a pan-Africanist. He was early to that. He, you know, the show he produced for public television was Black Journal, which many credit as the first sort of magazine-style television show. And for Black mm-hmm. Journal, he was like the Africa correspondent. So the guy was mm-hmm. crisscrossing all over Africa at a time when there weren't a lot of brothers like him doing what he did um, you know, on the journalism side of, you know, telling these stories. And, you know, my mom is from Haiti. And so that's another example of a, you know, obviously you're dealing with black folks, but you're dealing with black folks whose experience is obviously rooted in slavery, but a different flavor a bit from American sort of slavery. And then, you know, you have New Orleans and, you know, in that sort of story, you can tell a global story, you can tell an American story, and, you know, that is really nuanced. And I believe that, you know, he really wanted people to be entertained. You know, he always felt it was important for people to be entertained, but he also felt it was also equally important for people to be educated and also for black people to know about themselves. I remember as a kid, you know, asking him about Tarzan, right? The old school Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan that, you know, growing yeah. up in the 70s, it was all over TV. And, you know, I, I remember saying to my dad, like, how is this, like, white guy who's barely dressed somehow the king of the jungle and, like, all of these black people somehow kowtow to him? And he said to me, well, that's not true. That's not how it works. It's fantasy. But inside of Tarzan, from a documentary filmmaker's perspective, or from the perspective of someone who's never been to Africa, he said that that was Tarzan was some of his earliest glimpses at, at Africa. And it, uh-huh. it, it sparked a fascination in him. And obviously as a kid, he didn't understand you know, how this white man who's half naked is running around Africa running shit either. But when he learned about himself and his history, he realized that, you know, Tarzan, you know, uh, initially opened, piqued his interest as a kid in Africa, and he would go on to explore Africa. And he explained to me that in America, you know, there's a history that you're taught and there's a history that is your truth. And you have to look at the history that you're taught 
and try your best to distill the truth. And then inside of that truth, then you have to do the extra work to get the full picture. And so I, I, you know, I believe, and mind you, you know, this is just me speaking at 48, not at 10. But, you know, that's my perspective on it. I believe that he wanted to make a film, but he also felt that he had a platform. And if he had a platform, he wanted to take advantage of that and sort of hip his people to who they are and where they come from. Yeah. And why did it make you wonder where they uh, round up the performers uh, to appear in the movie? I know it's, it's interesting there's one, the, the, the guy who uh, played uh, Brother Maria's uh, brother, I believe, like, he, he's, he used to write for uh, Sanford and Son and Married with Children. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, my my dad also knew some black people in Hollywood and, and, and mingled, and, and and so, you know, he brought in some of his friends, and then the lead, Richard Romaine, was a local. You know, my dad's girlfriend, Cal, Carol Balthazar, she was from the area, and she was the one who turned him on to the whole story. Um, so, you know, a lot of homegrown talent. That's why it feels like a documentary, because he was a documentary filmmaker, and Again, using the example of Tarzan, I mean, you can say the same about Cane River. You're seeing um, the people, places, and things that populated Cane River back in 1981 and what it what it looked like and what it smelled like. And I think that's what resonates with people. I know there is a piece written about how Cane River is important because it shows black people in nature, you know, interacting with nature in a way that you typically – don't see on the big or small screen. And then also, you know, the idea of black love and black tenderness. And I mean, there's like full on necking in the film. I mean, you don't see necking these days. And when do you ever see black people being tender with one another, even now? You know, the fact that he did this back then, I mean, that's what, you know, for me, there was always, you know, uh, you know, when when I finally, I mean, mind you, I didn't see the film until a few years ago. I never saw the film until I was in my 40s. Yeah. Um, and so, that I, I mean, it was hard because, as you know, the soundtrack, which is a whole other thing that, you know, is interesting. Like, the soundtrack in many ways is a, is a dominant force in the film. And in many ways, it's very literal, right? So there are some people who have mm-hmm. said, wow. You know, the music is so literal and it throws you off. But when you really think about it, like it's almost like a long, long form music video in some ways. And so yeah. the way that he utilized, I mean, obviously Superfly had music, um, but even Superfly's music wasn't always literal. Okay, Freddie's Dead is literal. But some of it was just Curtis Mayfield being Curtis Mayfield. This stuff is so literal and literally connected to scenes that it's almost like a long form music video in some ways. So it's got like this music video thing. It's got this colorism thing. It's got this feminism thing with, you know, the daughter wanting to go to school and then the, the, the suitor wanting her to do something else. I mean, the guy was working with a lot of ideas that, oddly are still contemporary today and mm-hmm. you know the fact that people didn't know this for 40 years or nearly 40 years 
it stings a little bit. You know, I wonder, like, well, how would my life have been different if it would have connected when it should have connected? But you know what? Like, uh, there's a force that's greater than me at play here, and I can't explain again how literally Kane River was a needle in the haystack at Duart and how that film got found and how I Googled his name and I found it and, you know, how all these things happened, how I wound up doing what I'm doing without anyone sort of plugging me into anything. It wasn't like my daddy's, you know, juice from his days in Hollywood somehow got me to do what I do. So there's forces that are greater than me that I don't understand, and I just roll with it, and I'm just so happy that people are finally getting to appreciate the work, and, you know, his vision is out there. It's, it's an amazing feeling. I was about to ask, where the hell can I get the soundtrack? Because according to Discogs, it does exist on vinyl. So, yeah, where the hell? Where it's happen? crazy. The vinyl exists. You know, they made vinyl. Um, I have a couple of copies, and I, I go on eBay and find them every once in a while and snatch them up when I can. But, uh, yeah, the guy had a whole soundtrack in film that was never officially released. I'd like to release it sometime soon as a whole as a whole other beast. But, uh, yeah, the, the soundtrack is a crucial part of the film, and, you know, hopefully we can get that released soon. Yeah. Uh, all right, real quick sidebar. Is there any truth to the, the Richard Pryor story that I keep hearing about? Uh, he saw it and tried to get something going, but it, it tried to get it distributed theatrically, but it you know, didn't fall through. Was... Well, you know, I think some people dispute it, but the word that I've heard was that, you know, Richard Pryor was really, he came to a screening and he really loved the film and wanted to help out and get distribution for it. But the folks who financed the film were, were skeptical and were concerned that, you know, they might not have control over the film in the end. So I wasn't there. Is it true or not? I don't, you know, I don't know. Some people assert that this is the case. I believe the Rhodes family might say it's not the case. At this point, it doesn't even really matter, you know. It's like uh, the film never came out, and the film was sitting at Duart for God knows how many years, and here it is, you know. So it's part of the mythology. It's part of the myth of the film. Um, but, you know, Richard, Richard ain't here, and my dad ain't here, and Duplain Rhodes ain't here. So yeah. uh, three men who could have answered that question unequivocally are not here, so. Here we are. You find it interesting that uh, this uh, this movie now seems to pop up. It's set it, during this time where it seems that oh, that several uh, films from that era, from the eighties, I don't want to call it that era, but the eighties, uh, are coming out like you know Kathleen Collins losing ground and like Bill Gunn's personal problem, which are very uh, personal, intimate films starring and made by African Americans starring African Americans. It seems like this 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 nice little wave that's coming up of like these lost films. I mean, do you feel that it's like it's this this wave of lost films that are being you know finally being brought out there and hopefully being discovered by, especially now when it's you know in terms of what's going on with everything with uh, you know Black Lives Matter and and seems that a lot of streaming sites are pushing uh, black-made films, uh, even uh, having them play for free on their sites. I mean, just 
Because I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on that whole thing. Well, I think that, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, that whole movement is really a, a push for us to be recognized as American citizens and, and, and for us mm-hmm. to earn the respect that is supposed to come along with citizenship. And I think along with that goes the idea that black people are American filmmakers and these, there's a whole world of unpromoted, under-recognized black American or simply American filmmakers who happen to be black. And so now that there's so much, you know, push for justice, so much push for equality, so much push for let us get ours, that finally a lot of people are feeling, and these are non-black people, white people are feeling like, you know, it's time to wake up, it's time to recognize our neighbors and our fellow citizens. We need to, you know, respect them and respect their art and respect their work and give them the platform that we have dominated for so long. Now, you know, in many ways, one might argue it's a good time to be a black filmmaker because the empathy and the guilt is at an all-time high with white people. Um, Mm -hmm. Who knows how long it's going to last? You know, who knows? I mean, who knows? It just feels like a time that if you're black, you can actually say what's on your mind and not fear the repercussions as much. Um, and I think there's something liberating about that. Um, and I hope that other black artists are taking advantage of this moment. And I hope it seems like young people are really keeping the pressure on. And I think it's, it's amazing. And it's great for these young people to see their ancestors and the people who came before them with messages that are contemporary to what they're dealing with. And that can be said of the blues, that can be said of jazz, it can be said of go-go music, it could be said of Cane River. You know, yeah. all of these artists were telling stories that were a reflection of and reaction to our environments. And because our environments haven't really changed, you know, uh, MLK had his I Had a Dream speech you know, and then here we are now, people are saying Black Lives Matter, which is the most simple, um, most obvious sort of slogan, catchphrase. And initially, I was like, it's so simple that it bothered me, but I think that's the point. You know, when I try to explain what's going on to my eight-year-old kid and, and I explain to him why people are screaming Black Lives Matter, you know, he's trying to process it all, but when you see the way we are treated, clearly we're not treated like we matter. So I think America is having an awakening and America is dealing with the fact that we do matter and America is dealing with the fact that America has been completely negligent in um, giving us Americans who happen to be black and brown and other, the same kind of platform that white Americans get. Uh, and, you know, as you mentioned, of course, you're a documentary filmmaker. And of course, uh, just I've heard that uh, there's supposed to be a, a documentary on Cane River. Uh, I don't know if, if it's out yet or if it's just or if it's in the process. I just seeing uh, what can you tell me about that? 
Um, the, the documentary about the making of Cane River is something I'd love to make. Um, still in the process of doing research and learning about my dad. I mean, there's a script that he wrote that was recently discovered that is really interesting. And, you know, now that he is established as a narrative filmmaker, uh, maybe his script that was never seen can be something that gets made. I'd love to direct it if it's a possibility as I am mm-hmm. trans- I'm transitioning to in- into narrative. So, you know, it's it's this whole thing for me has been an opportunity to learn about my dad and learn about myself. Um, a lot of the folks who were involved with the film, for instance, the editor who I'd recently, recently met, she recently passed away. A lot of these folks are getting up in age. So, if the Cane River doc is going to happen, I got to start next week. So we'll see how that goes. But I'm also excited about this script that he that he wrote that I think has great potential. Okay, well we touched on a lot there. I just got to say, as Barry uh, working as uh, and as a uh, New Orleans native, I, you know, I, I was born there, but I mostly lived in Houston. This was just been a a nice little uh, uh, conversation to have. And, My pleasure. Uh, yes, uh, I'm glad to. I also, yeah, just let you know that I'm a big fan of Fresh Dress because uh, I actually oh, uh, think, think I put that on a, a listicle somewhere. Yeah, on Thrill List, I think so. I wrote about that a long time ago. But uh, yes, but uh, just uh, good luck. It's been, it's been lovely talking to you. It's just Good luck with uh, all the stuff you have going. Just good luck with everything in general. Thank you. All right. Well, just like you, you, you have a you have a good day now. You get good all right, you, too. Yeah. you too. You too. Right. Take it easy. All right. That was uh, Sasha Jenkins. Uh, great talking to him. Uh, once again, uh, you can catch Cane uh, River on the, on the iTunes, Google Play, YouTube. Uh, Amazon Prime, and also if you got a library card, uh, you can you can you can watch for free on Canopy. Believe it or not, just uh, that's that's a resource that more people need to find out about Canopy. Shouting them out. So yeah, I'm closing this out. So um, figured uh since we talked about Cane River, I figured just like I'd talk uh pull up a a song from the uh, soundtrack, which I hope to get one of these days. So uh, this one is uh, you know, Philip Manuel and uh, Anita Pinchon. Uh, it's called uh, Now That I Know You Love Me. Let me play this up real quick. Let's see if I can get it going. All right, just roll this up. So, um... Until next time, this is uh, Craig D. Lindsay saying, Sarah Huckabee, you, me, and a lot of Pringles. Let's do this. <laughs>